Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. This is part 2 of Yokai Explained episode. In part 1, I talked about first Japanese yokai, about Onmyoji protecting the Heian capital from demons, and about the birth of new type of yokai, Tsukumogami. So check it out if you missed it. This time, let's look at yokai interaction with people from Edo period onwards. In the Edo period, yokai underwent a major transformation. From phenomena that were sometimes drawn, they turned into entities, real creatures with names and distinguished looks. Though people of the Edo period preferred to call them bakemono, changing things. The word bakemono emphasizes shape-shifting, a characteristic common to many yokai, but it also applied to all sorts of strangely formed, frightening or anomalous creatures. During Edo times, people from cities and villages all over Japan moved to urban centers such as Edo and Osaka, making them sites of cultural exchange and creativity. The Edo period witnessed the rise of kabuki drama and puppet theater. A massive publishing industry that produced ukiyo wood blueprints was developed. Thousands of relatively inexpensive books, many of which were filled with illustrations, flooded the market. Not surprisingly, Yokai also found their way into the world of commercial art, popular literature, and drama. And one way they did so was Hyakumonogatari. Hyakumonogatari were gatherings at which spooky stories called kaidan were exchanged one after another. People would gather in the candlelit room and tell stories, spooky anecdotes about ghosts, strange creatures, or mysterious occurrences. After each brief tale, a lantern or candle would be extinguished. At the end of the final story, the room would be plunged into complete darkness. And then, it was said, a real yokai would appear. During the 17th century, Hyakumonogatari gatherings seemed to be a popular form of entertainment, where people shared stories based on legends of their home provinces, personal experiences or Chinese literature. Not much time passed before new stories and spooky creatures started to be invented solely for the game. And the more people shared their stories, the more images and attributes of individual yokai were developed. Given the vibrant literally and artistic world of the time, publishers soon began to gather and sell Hyakumonogatari collections. Some decided to focus on explaining the reasons for such phenomena instead. The publications continued even after the gatherings themselves lost their popularity. In fact, the kaidan form became part of literature, with some works like Ueda Akinari's Ugetsumonogatari being considered a masterpiece. Now, if you read any Edo period spooky stories, you'll notice that Oni, Tengu, Otsukumogami don't appear in them that often. Instead, people seem to be more interested in local legends and fantastic beasts. It's the Edo period when we learn about Yuki Onna from the north of the country, about Kappa inhabiting lakes and rivers of rural Japan, about a full plethora of trickster animals like Tanuki or Bakeneko. The Edo period was also a time of serious intellectual activity, boosted by the popularity of neo-Confucian philosophy known as Shushingaku, 
which promoted the investigation of things. One product of this broad interest in just about everything was a 105-volume encyclopedia called Wakan Sanzaizue, compiled by an Osaka medical practitioner named Terajima Ryoan and published in 1713. Interestingly enough, yokai appear in this monstrous encyclopedia, right alongside other animals. Mermaids are mentioned amongst other fishes, while in other sections one can find all sorts of yokai with a short yet detailed description of their physical characteristics, habits and habitats. Being placed together with such animals as rhinoceros and giraffes, yokai were not more real or more fantastic than them. At least your neighbor might have seen a kappa, but he surely has never met a giraffe. And now it's time for us to meet with the man responsible for the way we think yokai look today. His name is Toriyama Sekien, a follower of the Kano school of painting born in Edo in 1712. While not much is known about his life, there is no doubt he is a man who had the most significant influence on how we envision and understand yokai to this day. By mid-18th century, yokai were already separated from the stories they originated from. Artists were painting them individually or feature on the picture scrolls together with other yokai. But in 1776, Toriyama decided to publish a series of books dedicated to yokai, a kind of yokai encyclopedia, called Gazuhekiego. On each page of his book, a reader could find one black and white line drawing of a yokai with his name written near the image and sometimes a short description. The three volumes of Gazuhekiego introduce us to 51 yokai and there is not so much writing happening there. The entry on Kappa, for example, states Kappa, also called Kawataro. In fact, the writing was just not necessary, as Sekian started with the best-known yokai that didn't need much introduction. In his later catalogues, however, and there were three more, Sekian adds more text to the images. The guy was having lots of fun doing his job, his writing and his images become more inventive and playful with time. And while some of his yokai were adapted from the earlier discussed Wakan Sanzaizue, some were taken from old picture scrolls, some from Chinese materials, some from local belief and legend, more than a few, one analysis tells us as many as 85, were his own invention. And while it's sometimes difficult to tell if Sekian created some yokai from scratch, or there are just no early mentions of it left, he did a great job in popularizing lesser-known yokai. Through his books, creatures from China became Japanese yokai, and local yokai from all over Japan were presented to a mass readership. Fun fact, but because Sekian's catalogues are similar in format to the encyclopedias of the time, they had the effect of appearing to be an authoritative take on yokai. And even today, his catalogues are often treated as a quintessential record on the yokai world. But writing books was not the only way Sekian contributed to the popularization of yokai. He taught Kitagawa Utamaro and Utagawa Toyoharu, who would become the founder of Utagawa line of painters and teach Utagawa Kuniyoshi, who in turn taught Tsukioka Yoshitoshi and Kawanabe Kyosai, all brilliant artists known in part for portraying yokai. 
helping to completely separate yokai from text and legends, making them more generic and versatile, Sekiyan started the never-ending yokai boom in Japan. During the later part of the Edo period, yokai thrived in literature, theater, art and popular culture. But I suspect there is another reason why yokai thrived during the late Edo period. The censorship. As nothing bad could be said about the ruling Tokugawa clan, Kabuki plays often dressed up the modern-day issues as historical narratives, while books and woodblock prints utilized yokai to disguise people in power and showcase modern social problems. In 1843, the great ukiyo-e artist Otagawa Kuniyoshi published a famous triptych called Minamoto Raiko Kokantsuchugumo Saku Yokai no Zu. Raiko, a yokai-slaying hero we talked about earlier, was depicting sleeping in the spider's den surrounded by hundreds of yokai. Just a good old story. What could possibly be wrong here? Well, it was a time of unpopular and unfinished temple reforms. Reforms that were sending farmers living in Edo back to their villages and standing in the way of Edo people having fun. So, when the print was out, people were quick to name all yokai with the names of politicians and the spider with its sticky web, a Tokugawa government itself. Circle closed. People were called Tsuchiguma by the government, then Tsuchiguma turned into a real yokai, and now common folk called their rulers the Earth Spider. Another more light-hearted example we can find in Kibyoshi Yellow Covers. Illustrated comic books of small stories, a sort of manga of Edo period. In Kibyoshi, a particular yokai might represent an individual, a whole class, or a particular type of person. For example, let's look at Bakemono no Yome Iri. The monster takes a bride, published in 1807 by Jippensha Ikkyu. During the 18th century, there were picture books that carefully illustrated various rituals surrounding marriage like the wedding magazines do today. The Kibyoshi parodies of these books were adopting the same format, but portraying all the characters as yokai. Tsukumogami lanterns, each hoping on single leg, help to light the way, and one yokai remarks that a storm is about to start. Perfect weather for a wedding. By making all characters yokai, Author defamiliarizes a whole range of wedding customs and social standards that otherwise might go unquestioned and makes you think about them. No need to say yokai in Kibyoshi were anything but scary. They were goofy and comical. Let's say Kibyoshi completely ruined the scary image of yokai, but in a good way. Not connected to particular stories anymore, yokai became a sort of mascot characters. So during the late 18th and 19th centuries, they appear in board games, shooting galleries, spectacle shows, and even a popular card game known as Yokai Karuta, which is remarkably similar to contemporary Pokemon. But the yokai boom was not going to stop here. A scholar named Hirata Atsutane for example, interviewed individuals who had been carried away by Tengu or had had other supernatural experiences, like recalling a former life. Then you have a beautiful hobby of mermaid making, popular mines fishermen. All you need is a body of a monkey, a fish of a fitting size, and some sewing skills. Well, 
and some knowledge of taxidermy, but there is always time in the sea to learn something new. The mummified mermaids were a blast, and not only in Japan, as more than a few were found in the Netherlands. Then Dutch merchants sold one to an American sea captain, Samuel Barrett Aids, and in autumn 1822 a stuffed mermaid made a scientific sensation in London. Twenty years later it found its way to the United States, and in 1842 it was displayed by a great American showman, P.T. Barnum. Called the Fiji Mermaid, this 85-centimeter-long mummy was a success when Barnum showed it in New York. Who would have known mermaids were not that pretty? <sighs> but even scientists were taken by surprise, and now debating about the possibility of mermaids in the first place. But while the West was fascinated by DIY projects of Japanese fishermen, Japan was facing something really serious, namely a cholera epidemic. In a rapidly globalizing world, disease spread like wildfire. And it was time for Japan, that until just recently was an isolated island nation, to meet its first global threat. Arriving in Japan in 1822 from China, Ryukyu Kingdom in Okinawa, Cholera killed many, yet failed to reach the most populated area of Edo. But it took a short break and struck again in 1858. It is said to have been transmitted from crew members of the US Navy fleet, as 1858 was the year Japan was forced to sign a good bunch of unequal foreign treaties, starting with the Treaty of Amity and Commerce with the United States. Killing more than 100,000 people in Edo alone, it caused a massive panic. The scariest part was nobody knew what causes the disease, and so the cholera yokai appeared. In the 19th century, cholera was known in Japan under the name korori, to die suddenly. And when it came to writing it, there were a few variants, the most famous being written with the kanji for tiger, wolf and diarrhea showing both the most common symptom and the ferocity of the illness. The cholera yokai, also called korori, changed the last character of the illness name to tanuki. The result was a chimera with the head and front legs of a tiger, the body of a wolf and the testicles of tanuki. And while imagining how the danger looked like didn't help curing people, giving the disease name and shape making it a yokai was, as Komatsu Kazuhiko suggests, a way of taming it. Cholera would have one more major outbreak in Japan in 1862, but then the major era of enlightened government started. People understood that illness was coming from wells and sanitary recommendations would put an end to mass contamination. What happened to Korori and other yokai during these radical changes? Actually, they were doing good, but thanks for asking. From woodblock prints and stages of kabuki plays, they moved to books and magazines published by scholars, demystifiers of mysterious phenomena. And to do exactly that, one guy, called Inoue Enryo, created the discipline of yokai-gaku, or yokai-ology. While on the paper, his goal was to rationally explain the supernatural beliefs so that Japan could truly become a modern nation, Edo himself seemed to be so obsessed with collecting supernatural phenomena that he was nicknamed Professor Yokai. But 
I tend to think Andrew's interests were a result of his education. Born to a family of a Buddhist priest, he received both Western and Japanese education. In 1885, he left the University of Tokyo being the first Buddhist priest to graduate from the university and the first graduate to specialize in philosophy. In 1886, Andrew and his friends formed an organization called Fushigiken Kyukai, literally the Mystery Research Society. The society met only three times, but Andrew had already embarked on his yokai research. Starting with more than 2,000-page long Yokai Gakukogi, published in 1893-94, during his life he wrote thousands of pages on the subject. He traveled extensively around Japan, collecting local beliefs and customs and lecturing about yokai. What he was trying to do is to divide yokai into two categories. Kakai, false yokai, and shinkai, true yokai. And by filtering out all superstitions and other false mysteries that were deceiving the Japanese people and inhibiting their enlightenment, one would be able to identify true mystery. You've probably guessed it already, but it's thanks to Andrew and his numerous lectures and newspaper articles that the word yokai became part of the popular vocabulary. In 1891, when Ino Enryo was in his early 30s and already deeply immersed in his yokai research, he traveled to a small city of Matsue in Shimane Prefecture. There he spent the morning of May 30s, engrossed in conversation with a 40-year-old English teacher who recently arrived from America. There is no record of what the two discussed, so we cannot know if they talked about yokai. But the name of this English teacher was Lafcadio Hearn, without exaggeration, one of the most important foreign language interpreters of Japanese culture. Hearn was a master of the essay form and wrote about everything from Buddhism to proverbs to incense to insects. He also had a deep interest in spooky tales, and much of his work includes translated or rewritten versions of legends and ghost stories. Even his book titles such as Glimpses of Unfamiliar Japan, In Ghostly Japan and Kwaidan reflect his interest in the other world. What I want you to remember here, Hearn was not an ethnographer, but a writer, and a rather good one. So stories he wrote were sometimes far from original folktales he heard, but they were better. And it's even more interesting to note that many of the yokai stories evolved thanks to him, inspiring Japanese authors and directors and completely changing the image of some yokai in the decades to come. For example, Hearn's Yuki Onna is a classic tale that sounds very Japanese. Yet, if you look at earlier legends about Snow Woman, there is no much romance happening there. People were freezing to death during harsh and snowy winters of northern Japan. A snowstorm knocking on their doors was something to be feared. While at the same time there were other tales, where a crane or a fox would turn into a woman and live happily with a man until the truth is discovered and she has to flee. The motif is also common in the folklore of other cultures, and mixing it into Japanese tale, Hearn kept it Japanese yet made it more universal, creating an image that survives to this day in Japan and abroad as the most resonant image of the snow woman. Moving into the 20th century, the question of debunking yokai like Enryo 
or preserving them like her and turned out to be not relevant anymore. In 1923, Ematsutomu, a local historian interested in studying customs and manners, published a book about the history of Japanese yokai. He didn't care if they were real, as long as people he studied did. He looked at how people interacted with yokai in the past. Kind of what we are doing here today. And his attitude towards yokai can be seen through the 20th century, continuing into the work of one of modern Japan's most influential thinkers and a father of Japanese folkloristics, Yanagita Kunio. While he published his fair share of books about yokai and even one yokai glossary, we most remember him for making the distinction between yurei and bakemono introduced earlier. At the same time, Yanagita had an interesting theory that as human beings progress and move into a modern way of life, kami, objects of serious belief, degrade to yokai, which are sometimes even comical. He believed that many present customs were relics of an older, bigger system of belief that have faded over time and was slowly disappearing. And while scholars nowadays don't often share Yanagita's views, you can notice them in nostalgia post-war Japan, had about its innocent pre-war past. Talking about post-war Japan, there is one yokai-related name I'm sure you've heard at least once. Manga and anime artist Mizuki Shigeru. Born in 1922, he was raised in a small port town Sakai Minato in Totori Prefecture. He has written nostalgically about his childhood and particularly about an old woman who looked after him when his parents were busy. According to Mizuki's memoirs, it was through her that he was first trained in the mysterious things residing around him. Being a young man, he was sent to fight with the Japanese military in Papua New Guinea. He lost his left arm there and survived illness in the tropics. And he also met some yokai, or at least had experiences that were best explained with yokai interaction. After returning to Japan, he studied art and began to work as an illustrator. Then, in 1954, he created his most famous character, yokai boy, Kitaro. In 1968, Gegege no Kitaro became a successful anime series that was followed by four more anime, a couple of live-action movies and multiple video games. Mizuki's distinctive yokai characters have become part of the popular imagination of children and adults in late 20s and early 21st century Japan, and Mizuki's hometown of Sakai Minato turned into a popular tourist destination featuring a museum dedicated to Mizuki's work, along with the Mizuki Shigeru Road, a shopping street lined with more than 130 bronze yokai figures. And while Kitaro, Medama Oyaji, Nezumi Otoko and Neko Musume are Mizuki's original creations, he also adapted many yokai from the work of Sekiyan, Yanagita and others. In a way, he is a Sekiyan of the 20th century a man who uncovered forgotten yokai, gave them faces and made them famous through the popular media. And as it was with Sekiyan's book series, Mizuki's manga and anime sparked a second wave of yokai boom. In 1979, an urban legend about Kuchisake Onna, a bit too scary for me to retell, circulates throughout Japan, showing that Yanagita Kunio was wrong, a yokai and not ready to die just yet. Instead, they're not shy to enter the city anymore. 
Suddenly, in the 1980s, yokai became visible and commercially profitable. This brings us today, when we are surrounded by Pokemon, Yokai Watch, Natsume's Book of Friends, and dozens of other franchises monetizing on our love of yokai. And while I'm personally more familiar with the anime side of the yokai boom, it happens throughout the entire entertainment industry. For example, since his debut novel in 1994, Kyoko Kunatsuhiko, a superstar of yokai literature, has written dozens of books and hundreds of short stories and essays. His fiction has been adapted for television, film, manga and anime. He was just a regular worker of an advertising agency until, as legend says it, one day, with no warning, he simply brought a massive manuscript to the Kodansha publishing house. The resulting book was Obume no Natsu, a mystery story about a novelist and his acquaintance, used book dealer Kyogokudo. The book talks about yokai Ubume as well as mentions Sekien, Enryo and Yanagita and explores questions of belief and psychology. The Summer of the Ubume is the first work in Kyogoku's Hyakiyago series of novels. His second novel of the series, Moro no Hako, was made into manga, anime and live-action film. Then we have Studio Ghibli and their anime about Tanuki Pompoko, Spirited Away Kids and other mysterious creatures like Totoro. And then, as I'm going to finish this episode, let's not forget about Yurukera, mascot characters, representing literally everything in Japan. My bank had one, and so did my transport card. Kyoto Bus has one, and Kyoto City has a few of them. And while they are not necessarily yokai, though sometimes they are, the creative process is related. Looking at yokai Seki and created, it's often hard to tell which function they had, except being weird and funny. In a recent experiment, a Japanese university professor gave her students an assignment to come up with a new yokai. As a result, several students created yokai who would alter the flow of time to make people late for class. Many students built their yokai around wordplay and puns, while one person introduced the class to hitoma, one space or human gap. Referring to the single open seat one often finds on a crowded train or subway, a seat that mysteriously nobody seems willing to sit in. As a conclusion to this episode, I wanted to answer one question that often comes when I tell people about yokai. Do Japanese people really believe in them? While I do have friends who claim to have seen ghosts, and I even met a man who moved to Kyoto to learn more about a samurai he was in his previous life, most people don't bring yokai into their daily conversations. But I also guess that this question sprouts from another one. How come Japan has so many monsters and fantastic creatures? And it actually does have more than any other country in the world. But most important, they're here because they survived through the centuries. Survived because Japanese people chose to document them, to recreate them, to continue to tell their stories. They learned to accept and love their yokai, introducing them to art, literature and popular culture. I hope I answered this question. But don't hesitate to ask me more on Instagram or Patreon, where you can also find a small Patreon-only extra episode about three not very well-known yet very fascinating yokai. See you next time! Bye!